All right, you can go ahead and take a seat. So glad that you're here today. Uh, I don't know about you, but there are times when I have meetings or events that are coming up in the future, and there are things that I really wish I didn't have to do. Anybody else have that feeling? Yeah. You got a meeting or an event coming up, and if there was any way that you could get out of it, you would. But there's no way. You can't get out of it. It's something you've got to do. Uh, well, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, but when I first started dating Jennifer, she, uh, well, somebody went, yeah. No, it's going to be OK. It's not a bad story. Uh, <laughs> um, when I first started dating Jennifer, she explained to me that she had this incredible group of friends all through high school. Started right when she was a freshman, and they did everything together. It was guys and girls. Sometimes they dated, sometimes they didn't, but they stuck together through all the years of high school. And so we started dating when I was a senior in college. She was a junior in college, but she was still hanging out with and, and romanticizing this group of friends that she had all through high school. So guess what I got to do? I got to be included in a party where I got to meet this incredible group of friends that I had been hearing about for months. And I wasn't looking forward to it. I don't know about you, but when you're the new person in a thing like that, it can be really awkward. Like you feel like everyone's looking at you, they're evaluating you. Are you it's almost worse than in-laws, because they're like looking at you to see if you're worthy of this friend that they've had all these years. And I was not looking forward to that at all. And what does that say about my trust in my wife? At the time, she wasn't my wife. But it's kind of low, right? I don't have a lot of faith in her knowing what I might or might not enjoy. I don't have a lot of faith in what she's telling me about these friends. See, I didn't have that. I changed high schools between 10th and 11th grade. And so I had my teammates in basketball. And we practiced and played together. And that was really kind of it. I had my church friends. But I didn't really have this group of friends in high school like she had. So I didn't really understand that dynamic. And all I could think about was negative stuff, that I was going to be sitting in the corner while they told all this, these stories. They had their own language that I wasn't a part of. I was going to be the oddball looking in. Well, I went ahead and went through with it, obviously, because I cared about Jennifer. And I wanted to get to keep dating her. And uh, so we went to this party. And I have to say, she was right. It was an amazing group of people. I never once felt like an outsider looking in. I never once felt uh, awkward, except when I met one of the ex-boyfriends. But you know, that's expected. Uh, so this group of friends was amazing. And it, it caused me to grow in my faith and trust in Jennifer and what she might understand. Because I'm a little bit odd. And she was getting to know me and figuring out what kind of situations I would be OK in over time. And so my faith and trust in her went up. I'm glad I didn't find a way out of that situation. Well, we're in the middle of a series called Biographies of Faith from Hebrews 11. And this is one of my favorite uh, pieces of the New Testament, where it just outlines all these great uh, people of faith throughout Scripture and highlight something about their life that we can look at and go back on. Uh, in a week one, we saw the life of Abraham and that obedience is a true test of faith, that when things come up against you, you figure out if your faith is real or not by whether or not you take steps of obedience in the midst of what you're dealing with. Second week, last week, we saw that true faith doesn't guarantee us a happy ending, but we have the promises of God 
that give us an eternal perspective. And that changes everything. It's that rope illustration, right? We're going to talk about that again in just a few minutes. God sees it all, and he knows it all, and we can have confidence in his promises. Well, this week we're going to look at one of my favorite biblical characters, and that is Joseph. Um, Joseph, who has an incredible life in, in the Old Testament. He's a big part of the, the nation of Israel in its early history. But he gets this really odd one-verse mention in Hebrews 11. Over and over in his life, Things that seemed bad, things that we might dread, actually turned out for good. God used those things to turn out for good and to grow his faith, similar to what I experienced in being part of that group of friends that Jennifer introduced me to from her high school. And from Joseph's life, we can learn a lot about how true faith perseveres no matter the circumstances. Because a faith that isn't tested a faith that never deals with difficulty, a faith that never has to walk through anything can't really be called faith at all. For faith to really be a foundation, for faith to really be proven true, it has to be tested at some point. And one of the foundational characteristics of God that Joseph trusted throughout all his testing, throughout his life, was a belief in God's providence. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit today as we look at his life. But before we do that, let's pray together. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity we have to look at this hall of fame of faithful figures in Scripture. And God, to learn from their life, to learn from their faith, to learn from even sometimes how they, uh, what they expressed at the end of their life. God, help us to learn. Help us to see. Help us to have faith in you, to have confidence in you, to have confidence in who you are. And uh, God, to grow as a result of what we see today in your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to have a, a quick rundown on the life of Joseph, and we're going to cover eight chapters in Genesis in the next couple of minutes. You guys ready for that? Got your seatbelt on? All right, so there's some highlights in the life of Joseph that we're going to hit, and it's going to follow a little pattern, and I hope you'll catch on because this could be one of those kind of fun moments where you actually uh, talk with me and talk to me a little bit if you catch on. I'm not going to tell you the trick, but we'll see if you catch on, okay? <laughs> That's a little odd, a lo odd intro, right? Are your, are your wheels spinning? All right, pay attention, see if you catch on. So Joseph was one of 12 sons, and the other 11 knew that he was their dad's favorite. How did they know? Well, he told them, <laughs> and he showed it by giving Joseph a coat of many colors. When he, was a, when he was a boy. Now, a coat of many colors was a big deal because they didn't have access to all the colors that we have. It was really difficult to have multi, multiple colors of dye on fabric at that time in history. And so for this coat of many colors was expensive. It was rare. It was definitely a token of Joseph being the favorite. So that was kind of good, right? But not so good because his brothers got really jealous. They took him out one day to kill him. After a heated argument and discussion, they decided to drop him into a cistern instead and go home and tell their dad that Joseph was dead. That's bad. But not so bad, because right before they drop him into the hole, some Midianite traders come by, and they buy Joseph as a slave, keeping him alive. So that's good. But not so good. <laughs> Because he was sold from the Midianites to some Egyptians who were known for hating the Jewish people at the time. That's bad. 
but not so bad. Some of you are catching on. That's good. <laughs> because he was sold to a high-ranking government official in Egypt. Uh, this guy was a kind master, though, and treated Joseph well despite his slave status in the household of Potiphar, who was, who was his master. So that's good, but not so good. That's right. Because Potiphar's wife developed an attraction to Joseph and attempted to seduce him. And that's bad, but not so bad. Because Joseph stood firm in his convictions and his faithfulness to his master Potiphar, he refused Potiphar's wife's advances. So that's good, but not so good because Potiphar's wife lied about what happened, claiming that Joseph had attempted to rape her. He was arrested and placed in an Egyptian prison, and that's bad, but not so bad because in prison he met one of the Pharaoh's cupbearers, and Joseph was able to interpret this guy's dreams while they were in prison together. And the cupbearer, who was going to get out and was going to again be close to the Pharaoh, promised that when he got out, back to his position, he would remember Joseph and he would tell the Pharaoh about him. So that's good, but not so good because the cupbearer didn't keep his promise. He got out, he got busy in his job, and he forgot about Joseph, leaving him languishing in prison for many more years. And that's bad, but not so bad because the Pharaoh eventually had some dreams that no one could help him with. No one could interpret. His smartest advisors couldn't tell him what they meant. And as the cupbearer overheard their conversations, he remembered Joseph. And he said, I know a guy who could maybe help. He's down in prison. Pharaoh brings him out. Joseph uh, was able to interpret the dreams. The message of those dreams was that there was going to be seven years of really good crops and really good harvest, seven years of plenty. But then after that, there was going to be seven years of extreme famine. And so Joseph's recommendation by interpreting these dreams was that the Pharaoh should stockpile all the food he could during the good years and be ready for those lean years. Because of that wisdom, Joseph is elevated in the Egyptian government to a place second only to the Pharaoh who was his boss. And that sounds pretty good, right? But... Not so good, because the famine does come. And people from other nations did not stockpile food to prepare. And among those who weren't prepared for the famine that came were Joseph's family, who had remained separated from him in another land, with his father still believing that he was dead. And that's bad. But not so bad, because Joseph's brothers came to Egypt for help during the famine, and they stand before Joseph, not even realizing who he is, just a person of power in the Egyptian government. And he tests their hearts, and he asks about his father and his younger brother, and eventually, because of their interaction and because of his powerful placement in the Egyptian government, he's able to rescue his family. He reveals his identity. He moves his brothers and all of their families to Egypt to live. And those 12 brothers become the head of the 12 different tribes of Israel that we read about in the history of God's people. And that's good, right? But not so good because the Israelites grew in number while they're living in Egypt. And the Pharaoh that knew Joseph died and was replaced by another Pharaoh. And that Pharaoh didn't really like this whole population that it was growing on his land of these Hebrews. And so he enslaved them and he began to work them to death 
worked them extremely hard, worked them harder than they had ever worked before. And they began to be oppressed. They began to call out to God for deliverance. And that was bad. And that's where the pattern ends. Because <laughs> that's where we're going to see what Joseph is mentioned about in Hebrews 11. That's the point where uh, his faith is honored in this verse in Hebrews 11. So when you think about what the writer of Hebrews might highlight about Joseph's life, that whole thing we just did, and I left out a lot, by the way, um, and thank you for participating. That was fun. Um, but of all the things that God could have highlighted about Joseph in Hebrews 11, so many moments of faith, so many times that he persevered in, under incredibly depressing circumstances. Um, what's the one that he highlights? Let's see. It's Hebrews 11:22, And I'm going to bounce around a little bit today. So all these verses are going to be on the screen that I mentioned. But we're going to be in Hebrews 11 for a moment and then Genesis 50 if you want to uh, go back and forth with me. But Hebrews 11:22 says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Well, I don't know about you, but I read that and I go, what? Really, of all the things, all the amazing things that Joseph was able to do for God to help his people be saved um, in Egypt to help his brothers be the, the leaders of the 12 tribes, all of these things he could have highlighted. He talks about how Joseph makes a mention of the Exodus and gives directions about his bones. Well, I want us to look at Genesis 50 because we need to see what this verse is talking about to understand why it's such an important moment to highlight in the roll call of the faithful. And it happens in Genesis 50, verses 24 to 26. At the end of Joseph's life, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So why is that significant? Why is that such an important moment? Well, we have the benefit of hindsight, right? We know about the Exodus. We know how incredible it is. We know what God does through Moses uh, in getting the people out of that oppression. Joseph's in the middle of it. He doesn't know what the answer is. He doesn't know the rest of the story, but he still has confidence that God is going to keep his promises. And so he talks about the Exodus that hasn't happened yet. He says, God's going to do this. He's going to show up. He's going to move. He's going to get us out of here. He's going to keep his promise. And when he does... You're going to take my bones with you because I want to be there. So that's why this is such an important moment. He's, he's looking into the future because of his confidence in God's promise, not knowing how it's going to happen, but knowing that it will because of his confidence in God. And he says something amazing to his brothers uh, just before this. And this is really where I want to camp out a little bit because Joseph summarizes his life. And I think it gives us three very important things about faith that we can learn from the life of Joseph and understanding why he's highlighted the way he is in Hebrews chapter 11. And this is actually just a few verses up if you're still in Genesis 50. Verses 19 and 20, something he says to his brothers, uh, again, to kind of summarize his life. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for, I am, in the, for am I in the place of God? I don't think that's where we are even. I'm not sure... <laughs> I'm not sure what you're reading over there. All right. 
Uh, Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So here's Joseph's summary of faith, summary of his life, of what all of the different things that had happened. He's talking to his brothers. Um, and we need to understand that for Joseph, faith begins with God, not circumstances. So faith begins with God, not our circumstances. The uh, brothers are fearful of what Joseph is going to do. They're fearful. They think, okay, he's, he's, at some point he's going to let us have it because of what we did to him when he was a boy. Um, and they, once again, they kind of concoct a plan. They're always doing this. They concoct a plan to try and manipulate the circumstances, making up something about their father's dying wish being that Joseph would forgive them. And they're playing on his sympathy in that way. And when they give Joseph this plan, this is his response. Unlike his brothers, who were always trying to manipulate circumstances, Joseph didn't presume on what God wanted to do. Uh, he didn't presume and try to manipulate God he understood that true faith in God could not be conditional because trusting in God, similar to Abraham, trusting in God is proven through circumstances by how we view them, how we respond to them. And so Joseph said, hey, I'm not in the place of God, but I believe in who he is. And I know that he meant what you meant for evil, he used for good. And he was kind of just saying, look around you. You're here because of what God did through the evil that you intended. So even though in respect to his brothers and their situation, Joseph had the power for vengeance, he once again expressed his confidence in God's control because he had faith in God, not in what he might be able to get from God. And I think we uh, have trouble with this some in our Western culture. It's about the person and character of God, not about what you might be able to get from him. So he had faith in God's character. He had faith in God's promises. He had faith in who God is, knowing that putting his faith in God, he could trust him with whatever might come uh, in his life. When things don't go the way we think they should, if we're concentrated on circumstances, and you know, I think Joseph had a few moments in his life where he probably questioned, why is this happening to me? This does not seem right. This doesn't seem fair. Um, but a faith that's based on benefits over relationship is going to falter. When it's all about what you can get, if you don't get it, it's, it's a problem, right? A faith that relies on circumstances over character will fail because circumstances are fickle and they will change. Um, our world is broken, as we saw yesterday with shootings in two different cities um, in the national news. Our world is broken. And that's because of the sin that's entered the world. And God is going to redeem it all someday. But for now, we live in a broken world. And so there are things that happen that don't make sense. There's evil. But God has promised that no matter what we see, no matter what this world throws at us, we can have confidence in Him and who He is. So it has to be about His character and His promises. No circumstances can change the relationship or the character of God. And here's the good news. God is all-knowing, He's all-powerful, He loves you, He wants the best for you, so you can trust Him. That's right. 
God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He loves you and wants the best for you, so you can trust him. And he's proven it over and over, and he proved it over and over in Joseph's life, and that's why when at the end of his life, Joseph didn't know how it was going to happen, but he still had confidence that it would, and he wanted to be sure somebody was taking his bones with him when they left, right? <laughs> um, it wasn't an if for Joseph. It was a when, and that was a key difference, a faith that begins with the person and character of God. And the second thing we can learn from how Joseph summarizes his life is that God's providence is a foundational belief that will carry you through life's ups and downs. God's providence. I've thrown that word out a couple of times. I want to help you understand what it means. But it's a foundational belief that's going to carry you through life's ups and downs. Remember again what Joseph said to his brothers in verse 20 of chapter 50 in Genesis. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Again, he's saying, look around you. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And this, again, is a statement of affirmation about God's promises, uh, God's providence, because God sees all and knows all. He sees a much bigger picture of life and history than we can ever comprehend. Again, it's Derek's rope from last week. You have eternity stretched across the room as a rope. Our little piece of history is like a two-inch piece of tape, and your life is a line on the piece of tape, and you can't even remember everything about your line. Right? And so God sees all of it. He sees the entire picture, and he knows all of it. He knows the entire picture. He knows things about you and your life that you can't even remember. And what we do is we react to things that happen. God sees it, and he can plan, and he can be proactive. It's a big difference. You react, God can be proactive. And the truth, this truth, God's providence, is one of the foundational understandings we need to have in order to understand why it's so much better to give Him control, to make Him Lord, His providence. Uh, I may be giving away something you don't want to know about me, but I, I like to watch Survivor. Um, and my sister got me hooked on it in season two. I thought she was crazy. She set me down one day and said, you got to watch this. And I watched it, and I've sort of been a survivor junkie ever since. I even almost applied one time, and then Jennifer talked me out of it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's that bad. Um, and she didn't want me gone for 40 days, and also we weren't too, we aren't too keen on how they portray Christians. So, I, uh, anyway, there's some reasons I didn't... Not that I would have made it anyway, but uh, <laughs> one of the things about Survivor is that they always have this challenge every year where the, one of the team members is up on a tower and the rest of them are in a blob, like hooked together somehow, ropes or hooks or whatever they're going to do that season, and they're blindfolded, and they're on a, a field of obstacles, and there's things out on the field that they have to go retrieve and bring back, puzzle pieces or keys or whatever nonsense, and they're in a bag and they then have to open it and finish the puzzle. Well... It's very important in that circumstance that you have a good caller, right? Someone that everyone trusts and believes in, um, that can see the entire field, can see the obstacles, can steer people. I've seen people on the show need stitches because the caller doesn't tell them where to go well enough, and they run right into some, one of the obstacles. Needless to say, when that happens, they don't have much confidence in the caller the rest of that time. Well, when you think about it, this is kind of like God's providence. God is the perfect caller. He's up on the tower. He sees all the obstacles. 
He sees all the goals. We're running around blindfolded, trying to finally find things. But so often we run off ahead without listening to God's voice. We run right into things and we need stitches, right? Uh, we, we bump into things that cause us pain. And, and God is the caller saying, if you would have just listened to me, if you would have just trusted in my providence to lead you through this field of obstacles. It's a lot like that. God's providence makes him the perfect caller for our lives, and we need to trust in it. God's in control, so Joseph didn't have to be. He didn't have to worry about it. He trusted in God's control. And when we're like Joseph's brothers, and we try to wrestle control from God over our circumstances, it signals a lack of faith. It's kind of a thank you, but no thank you, God. I got this kind of mentality, and we run off blindfolded, not listening to his guidance, not understanding there's a bigger picture than just our little line on the tape, on the rope. We need to trust in God's providence, even when we can't see the end goal, even when we don't know how it's going to turn out. We have trust in who God is and what he's done and what he will do. It's the foundation of a faith that will persevere when life doesn't make sense, and it often doesn't. So we need that foundation. And it's closely related to the third thing uh, we can learn about faith from Joseph's life. And that is an enduring faith understands that God is always at work. He's always at work. When you, when you have that foundation of God's providence, when you believe in his character, it then translates into your understanding that of his promise that he's always at work in and through your life. And we see that in Romans 8, 28. The verse tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is a misunderstood verse. You, you need to be careful and understand it doesn't say all things are good. All things will feel good. It doesn't say either of those things. It says all things work together for good. Those that love God and are called according to his purpose. When we experience difficulty in this life, we can trust even if it's broken, even if it's painful, that God can bring his good through that circumstance. Again, it doesn't mean it is good. It doesn't mean it feels good. But we trust in God's goodness to bring about his plan through the pain. Um, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in another place, in Romans 5, 2 through 5. He says, through him, and he's talking about Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There it is. God is always at work. You're always somewhere on this progression of sanctification. That is becoming who God wants you to become. You're somewhere in this path, and it's not a start here and end here. It's a cycle, right? There are times of suffering, and we want to we be faithful and persevere through them so that we can get to the endurance because we know that as we endure, it betters our character and prepares us for whatever it is that God wants to call us to do and to be in our lives. So we rejoice in the suffering, like Joseph did. So many moments where he could have just thrown in the towel and said, God, you've forgotten about me, I'm forgetting about you. But he didn't. He faithfully persevered throughout his life. 
And I don't know where you're at today. When someone looks at your life, if you were to lay it out, they might look at it. If we were doing the little thing we did earlier, the, the bad and the good, we might talk about your life and they might go, whoa, that's bad. Right? But we need to remember the next phrase, but not so bad, because God is always at work. He's always at work. And what the world sees as bad, when you have a faith that perseveres, a faith that is founded on the truth of God's providence, knowing he's always at work, when the world sees your life as bad, it's not that bad because God doesn't waste any opportunity to teach and mold us into who he sees us becoming. Again, it doesn't mean it feels good. It doesn't take away the pain. But it gives us a different perspective on what's happening in our lives, knowing that God is always at work. Now, on the other side... You might lay out your life and you might be in one of those moments like Joseph when he got elevated to being the number two in Egypt. They might look at your life and go, wow, that's pretty good, right? But what's the next phrase? But not so good. Life is a cycle. It's always changing. Circumstances are changing. And a faith that perseveres knows that when things are good in this world, it can change quickly. And what the world sees as good might actually be misleading, a faith that perseveres is continually abiding with God in the good. Because, again, it's about your faith begins with God, not your circumstances. It's about who he is and what he's done, not about how good you have it today or in this moment. So if you want a faith that perseveres, a faith that gets to the end of this life and still looks forward to the promises of God, a faith that remains steady through all the twists and turns and heartache and pain and joy and excitement that this life has to offer. Make sure your faith begins with God, is founding on, founded on a firm belief in His providence, that He's the, the perfect caller for your life, and recognizing that He's always at work, because that's good, really good. Let's pray together. God, I just thank you that we can trust you that you've proven yourself, like the songs we were singing, there, there won't be a day that you're not by our side. Um, God, the, the cross needs no addition. The work is complete. We can know you. We know your love for us because you've proven it. You've shown it. We see examples in Scripture like Joseph where he stayed faithful to you, you stayed faithful to him, and you used him to do incredible things for your people, for your kingdom. God, that's our desire. We want to be who you've called us to be. Whatever kind of suffering this life throws at us, God, I know people in this room are, are in those moments. Whatever those difficulties are, that we would have that perspective because of our relationship with you, that you're in control. We can trust you knowing that you're at work. And God, if people are in those good moments, Help them not to be apathetic or complacent, but to dig in to the joy of uh, those positive circumstances, to dig into their relationship with you, to abide with you, to prepare for the inevitable cycle that comes next of some kind of difficulty that this life will throw at them. God, again, what a privilege to be able to trust you, to know you, to love you, to have these examples that we have in Hebrews 11 to be able to look at them and know 
the only special thing about them was their faith in you. It's what you did. And God, you want to continue to do those kind of things in us and through us, through our individual lives and through our, our collective life together as a church. Thank you for calling us and for bringing us together, for giving us the opportunity to know and love you and serve you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.